So we're going to look at uh, John chapter 3, if you've got a Bible, otherwise it'll be on the screen as well. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's room and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sounds, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Good afternoon to everyone who's watching at home, and thanks everyone for being in the building here with us on Father's Day. And um, we're going to have another great afternoon digging into doctrine as we continue a run of weeks looking at big words that end in shun. We kicked it off with propitiation, then last week justification, and this week regeneration. But as we said at the beginning of the series, the point of this series is not to, the, to get to the end of it and have like a, a vocabulary of words that makes you feel smart about the Bible. These words are just ways of summarizing key teachings of Scripture that really matter. And so I look forward to digging into that this afternoon. But a quick shout out to the dads of City Light. Look, we, we really hope uh, over this next season that, um, that you guys will, will grow deeper. We are thankful to have a day where we can just thank God for the gift of dads and pray that, um, that you guys will be dads who, who love God, who love and serve your wives and your families really well. And, uh, and for this reason, we said this week we'd have a bit of a, a treat for you. There's, there's something coming around a little bit later. Um, but, uh, but this week I got together with a friend, Faf, who some of you know, and dropped a podcast called On Field Dads. Uh, so if you are a dad and looking to get in the game and off the bench, that is a podcast just for you. Uh, and our hope is over time to help dads and strengthen dads to get in the game and to love and serve their families in a Christ-like way. And over this series as well, our hope is that, that you dads will be guys who are theologically engaged. Not the kind of dads who every time kids come with a question, like who made God or something like that, that you're a ask your mother type of dad but a dad who knows Jesus and is in the Word and can share the Word with his family. So dads, pay attention as we dive into Scripture, because today we're going to be asking the question, how does someone go from not having faith in Jesus to having faith in Jesus? How does someone go from what you would say not saved to saved? Because we are concerned about how it is that you get on the inside of a group, aren't we? C.S. Lewis, who uh, you may know as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, he gave a lecture to a bunch of students who were finishing up their uni degree, and it was called The Inner Ring. And it was a, a little a lecture that, um, look, whether you are a Christian or not, whether you'd even call yourself religious or you'd, you'd, you'd consider yourself pretty secular, uh, it's worth your time because it was written to a mixed group, and his concern was to share with them something, a phenomenon he called The Inner Ring. And the simple way of explaining it is like this. Anytime you enter a new social context, you will find two authority structures. There'll be one official authority structure, and then you'll find there's an unofficial but more powerful authority structure. So if you enter a new workplace, a new sporting team, 
uh, a new educational sort of uh, environment, wherever it is, you will tend to find that within that group, there is an inner ring. And these people are the real power brokers. And this is the group of people that everyone, whether they admit it or not, kind of wants to be in on. And he describes it in this way. He says, The inner ring is not a formally organized secret society with offices and rules which you could be told when you're admitted. You are never formally and explicitly admitted by anyone. You discover gradually, in almost indefinable ways, that it exists and that you are outside it, and then later, perhaps, inside it. There are what correspond to passwords, but they too are spontaneous and informal. A particular slang, the use of particular nicknames, an elusive manner of conversation are the marks. But it's not constant, and it's not easy at any given moment to say who is inside and who is outside. Some people are obviously in, and some people are obviously out, but there are always several on the borderline. There are no formal admissions or expulsions. People think they are in it after they have been pushed out of it or before they've been allowed in. And this provides great amusement for those who are really inside. It has no fixed name. The only certain rule is that insiders and outsiders will call it by different names. From inside, it may be designated in simple cases by mere enumeration. It may be called, you and Tony and me. When it's very secure and comparatively stable in membership, it calls itself we. When it has to be suddenly expanded to meet a particular emergency, it calls itself all the sensible people in this place. From outside, if you've despaired of getting into it, you call it that gang or they or so-and-so in his set, the caucus, the inner ring. If you're a candidate for admission, you probably don't call it anything. To discuss it with other outsiders would make you feel outside yourself, and to mention it in talking to the person who is inside and who may help you if this present conversation goes well would be madness. This is what C.S. Lewis called many, many years ago the inner ring, and it still plays on today. And it's not just in high schools, it's workplaces, it's educational settings, it's teams, it's any environment where there is people. And many of us, whether we want to admit it or not, have expended much mental energy, our emotional energy, trying to be in or, or remain in an inner ring. We are very concerned with how to get on the inside of things. And so it comes, when it comes to Christianity, many of us figure, because all of our lives we've got into things by something that we do, we assume that when it comes to knowing God and being a person of God, being one of His children that it must involve something about me that I do as well. But if the Bible teaches us anything about what it means to be a follower of Christ, there is one metaphor that stands above all others, and it's called the new birth. If you have not been around Christian circles much, you still may have heard the term a born-again Christian. This idea of the new birth is the supreme metaphor for what it means to become a Christian. And just like actual birth, it involves no choice from you, but a choice that someone else made for you. We're going to see that we didn't primarily choose God so much as He chose us. I'm going to pray that He'd open our eyes to see this as we open the Scriptures from John 3. Let's pray. Father, Your ways are so often mysterious that You are and Your thoughts are beyond us. Father, we pray that as we open your word, 
that your spirit would give us eyes to see how great a salvation you have brought about for us. That though in sin we were dead, you have made us alive together with Christ through the new birth, through the Holy Spirit, so that we may know you and live with you and for you. And we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, just as people in a 21st century context are concerned about how to be in a particular group, so they were in the first century. And a man in the story that Jacob read out before comes up to Jesus and he's asking him that very question. He's saying, as a religious teacher himself, he's saying, how do I get in on the kingdom of God? How do I know that I'm really one of the people who belong to the kingdom of God? And we pick up the story in John 3.1. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees, so these are the religious teachers or authorities, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. So this tells you something already. He's a prominent figure in the Jewish community. He's a ruler. He's a Pharisee. He's a teacher. So he is authoritative himself. He's supposed to know the Bible. And he figures that Jesus is some kind of authority on these matters because he wants to ask him a question. But he also doesn't want to be closely associated with him. Obviously, people are talking about Jesus, and so Nicodemus comes to visit him by night so that no one else will know that he's going to do this. So he comes to Jesus by night, and he says to him, Rabbi, so he calls him teacher. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I love that. He wasn't even asked a question, and he just launches into this. The guy comes up to him and says, Jesus, you're obviously a really great teacher. And Jesus says, did you know you can't, be born, you can't be in the kingdom of God unless you're born again? And so he kicks off this conversation. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says to him, you want to know how to be one of the people of God? You must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what exactly do you mean? No one can be born again. You can't enter the womb a second time. That's, that's, that's year seven PDHPE. Everyone knows you can't be born twice. What are you talking about, Jesus? And so Jesus adds, on top of saying something cryptic, something even more cryptic, and says, I tell you, you, can't, you have to be born of the water and of spirit to be in the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus replies in John 3, 9 and 10, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Jesus is speaking to this guy as if he should know what he's talking about. And the reason he's doing that is because Jesus is picking up on a passage that any Pharisee who's worth his salt should know about. Ezekiel 36 was a significant passage for the people of God. It was written at a time when they were in exile, so they were kicked out of their homeland. And God is making promises to say that he's going to restore the fortunes of Israel one day. And he's going to bring his people back to himself. And so it was a passage they were well familiar with. And Jesus says to him, if you want to be a person of God, if you want to be one of the children of God, 
You must be born again by the water and spirit. And he's referring to Ezekiel 36, 24 to 28. Look at what it says there. It says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers so that you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is where God promises to a people who have rebelled against him again and again and again and again that not only is he going to forgive their sins, he says, I'll wash you with water, I'll wash you clean of your sin. And then he says, and not only that, to stop you from constantly rebelling against me, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take out that heart of stone that is hardened by sin and rebels against me over and over again. And I will give you a new heart, one that beats for me, one with new desires so that you will live for me and be my people. He says there, so that you will walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You will be my people and I will be your God, even though they had failed again and again and again over hundreds of years, though they'd been warned thousands of times. God says, finally, I will change you. I will wash away your sin completely and I'll give you a new heart so that you can follow me with all of your heart. This is what Jesus is talking about when he's speaking to Nicodemus. He says, this is how you enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born again completely. You have to be made a completely new person. And why? Because sin is such a thing that once you have committed it, you are completely dead. This is what theologians call total depravity. The idea is that all of humankind, as we've looked at in previous weeks, have sinned against God. But it's not just that we've sinned against God, it's that sin affects the whole person. Sin ruins the whole person. Now, total depravity is getting at the idea that when we sin, it means that we cannot live for God. It affects the entire person right down to the core. It's not just a matter of behaviors that we do. It's not a matter of mistakes. It is a ruining of the whole person. Now, total depravity is not to be confused with utter depravity. The Bible is not saying every person is as wicked as they could be. The idea of total depravity is that sin ruins the whole person. It's not merely a behavior. And so that's why in Ephesians 2, when it describes our fallen condition, look at the language that's used. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. The Bible says when we rebel against God, it's not a lifestyle choice. It's not something that we can switch off and then switch back on. Once we are in sin, and that is all of humanity, we are spiritually dead, unable to respond rightly to God, unable to have hearts that are affected by the Word of God. It's not merely a matter of poor behaviors or a change of behavior to follow Jesus. Sin is a heart problem. It goes right to the core of us, to our very desires. And to merely change externals is not deep enough a work to change the issue of sin. You can think of it like this. My, my uncle, a number of years ago, 
had a condition where the doctors were unsure what was wrong with him. He was clearly getting sicker and sicker week by week. All of the treatments and the antibiotics they were using were having very little or no effect. And it was seemed that his condition was basically critical. And what they worked out eventually was that even though... So his, it was clear that his blood was toxic and was poisoning his body. And so they'd give him transfusions, but none of that worked. And the reason for it was that under one of the valves in his heart, bicuspid, tricuspid, I don't know, whoever, someone here will know what it was, there was an infection. And so when clean blood would come into the heart, it would come out toxic and then be poisoning his body. It wasn't enough to just give him a transfusion or some medications. It needed a deep work in order to get to the core of the issue. When it comes to sin, Jesus says it's not enough to just have a change of mind. It's not a lifestyle choice. Now, Jesus says to become a follower of Jesus means you have to have an entire heart transplant. He has to take out your heart of stone, a heart that has been hardened by sin, and give you a new heart, one that beats for him. Sin is a heart problem. When we are dead in sin, we are not able to respond to God. But it even goes deeper than that. In John 8, when Jesus is interacting with a bunch of religious rulers and Jews, he speaks to them about the condition of sin like this. In John 8, look at what he says. In, 8, in John 8, 31, Jesus says to the Jews, uh, said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus says, when we sin, we are in fact enslaved to sin. Now that's a strange way to talk about it, isn't it? Because when we talk about sin, I mean, who's doing it? It's, it's me. So how is it that you could be a slave to yourself? Romans 8 even goes further. It says, The sinful mind is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. When we are sinning, we cannot stop it. And even the things that we do that seem to be right are done from a wrong heart and are still ruined by sin. See, when the Bible talks about being slaves to sin, the, the easiest way to understand it is that it's kind of akin to addiction. Addiction is a condition where you are very much a slave to yourself. Let me illustrate this way. How many people have seen like a, a Louis Theroux documentary? So okay, there's not too much background work to do. If you're not familiar with his MO, he's a, um, a British what, journalist, and he's got this just nerdy, disarming kind of nature that means that he gets into all these contexts and places that he probably shouldn't, and people just forget that they're on camera because he's so disarming. They just forget all their inhibitions, and they, just, they say some stuff that clearly they're going to regret later. But anyway, he, goes, he does one documentary on Las Vegas on gambling. And he interviews a whole bunch of people from high rollers to just regular sort of casino goers. But when he's in one particular casino, all the staff keep saying to him, oh, you've got to meet Martha. She's in here every day. We've got to introduce you to Martha. And so he goes to see Martha. And he sits down with her, and they're at the poker machines, and he starts asking some questions of Martha. And the conversation goes like this. He says to Martha, are you addicted? And she says, no, I could quit whenever I want. And he says, have you ever thought of quitting? She says, no, 
I enjoy it too much. And then he says, can you afford it? She says, I lost $4 million in the casino in seven years. She was a doctor, wealthy, competent, and has blown over $4 million on the poker machines in one casino over seven years. She is a slave. And yet, in trying to talk it out of her, she wouldn't have it. She's a reasonable person. She's a qualified medical doctor. She's not insane or mentally defective. The doors of the casino are not locked, and yet she is imprisoned there. No one would say she's living in freedom. This is the closest I can get to explaining what sin is like when it traps us. We want to do it. We cannot and do not live for God, and we are trapped by our own desires and unable to break free of it. See, sin is not like a prisoner in a jail who's shaking the bars trying to get out. Now, the gospel tells us that it's more like this. God has done everything necessary to take away our sin and to set us free. It's like we're a prisoner in a cage and he's flung the door open and said, all you need to do is leave and we still will not leave because we can't imagine that it would be any better. And so God has to break into our life, send his spirit into our heart so that we have a new heart that would put its faith in Jesus so that we would trust him and be washed clean. This is why in Ephesians 2.4, look at what it says, how it describes the way you become a follower of Jesus. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. See, it's while we were still sinners that he made us alive together with Christ. He brought us to life by the Spirit and caused us to believe in Jesus. Because in sin, we were stuck in sin. And even hearing the, the, the free offer of the gospel, the love poured out for us, the sacrifice that Jesus made to swap our sin for his righteousness, we would hear that offer and think, no thanks, I'm fine by myself. And so God, because of his great love, has to intervene even further and give us a new heart so that we'll see the peril that we're in and the Savior that we need and reach out in faith and trust in Christ. This is regeneration. This is the new birth. This is how the Bible describes how if you are here and a follower of Jesus, this is how you came to follow Jesus. Not because you made a good decision or a reasoned decision, but because God in His great love had mercy on you. I used to hear all the time as a kid, I went to youth group, I wasn't a follower of Jesus, and I used to hear salvation described in this way, that it's like you're, in, you're at sea, there's no land for, I don't know, hundreds of kilometers in every direction, and you are, how you got in that spot, it's not important, it's just an illustration, right? So you're in the sea, you're stuck there, the rescue chopper comes out, the rescue worker is winched down, they reach out their hand, and faith is just you putting out your hand. It's kind of like, Grace is that God does 99.999% of the work and faith is just doing that little 0.1. But that's not the gospel, is it? The illustration from Ephesians uh, 2 would be this, that you're at sea, you're lost, the chopper comes out, the guy's winched down, he puts his hand out and then you say, no thanks, I'm not much of a swimmer but I've got a really good feeling about this one. I'm going to take it myself, thank you very much and you paddle off in the opposite direction. And then God, by his, spirit, by his power, sends his spirit into your heart so that suddenly you realize the danger that you're in, 
and you put out your hand in faith and reach out for him. God does 100% of the work. It is all grace. A corpse cannot wake itself because it's not even aware that it's dead. We were raised to life. We were dead in sin and could do nothing about it. And God in his great mercy reached out to us. That's why Titus 2.5 describes it in this way. It says, He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian here today, this is how you got saved. You were spiritually dead, uninterested in God, undesirous of God, not wanting to know God and happy to live without Him. But He had mercy on you. And poured out His Spirit on you that you might know Him, reach out in faith, and be made new. And I know from some of your testimonies that this is exactly how it happened. This was my testimony. That I went to youth group and church for years and heard a clear gospel message year after year. And it was as interesting to me as the used-by dates on packets. It, made no, it just had no impact on me. And then one day, God just turned on the lights and, it was a, and suddenly the, the message I've been hearing that whole time went from being nothing to everything, went from being nothing to life-changing. The Bible, instead becoming a treasure and a joy, Jesus, instead of being an idea or a concept, is a real person and a king and savior. This is what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the new birth. We freely reject Jesus in our sin, but we cannot freely accept God. God does not have to intervene in our rejection of him, but he has to intervene in our putting our faith in him. This is God's mercy to us in Christ. And so this means a couple of things for you. And the first one is this. If, you are, if you're listening in or you're here and you have questions about who God is, one of your objections, and this was certainly mine before coming, becoming a Christian, was as you look into the Bible or even into the lives around you, and you get a vision of what it might mean to follow Jesus. The kind of things you might be doing and the kind of things you will have to not do. There can be a sense of like, I, I can't see myself ever being into that. For me, I developed the impression that there was a certain type of person that was into Jesus and it just kind of wasn't my style. And the kind of things that I was going to have to miss out on were at the time the things that I really loved and the kind of things that people were doing, like being a part of church with things that I just couldn't imagine would be enjoyable twice, let alone 50-odd times a year. But if the truth of regeneration is true, then God gives you a new heart so that you will enjoy what you could not enjoy in sin. Think of it like this. Recently, there was talk, we had a bit of a debate. I, I was working on the theory. And I was, like I'm, I'm starting to let go of it, but it's, it's still partly there for me. Working on the theory that um, when it comes to health, I can basically eat and drink anything I want so long as I exercise a lot to sort of balance it out. Like input, output, that sort of thing. Anyway, to, I mean, the doctor sided with my wife, but um, whatever. I mean, this, you can find a doctor to say anything these days, can't you, right? Um, but um, so we started to talk about whether we need to get into like healthy living, like healthy eating. And that would be kind of like the next, you know, whatever thing. And I know for myself that when I get into something, I can often get all the way into it. I was like, man, if I start down this trail, I might get right into healthy living. And if I do that, I might leave aside burgers. And I love burgers. But then, of course, 
That's entirely illogical, isn't it? Because if I were to leave aside burgers, it would be because I actually enjoy something else and I've kind of lost interest in it. It wouldn't, at that point, it would be no loss, would it? When it comes to joy, it would be because I enjoy something else more. If you are contemplating and even weighing up the cost, as Jesus says you should do before following him, but your worry is that I don't know if I can get into the things that Jesus is really saying I need to be living for, the truth is he will empower you to do so. When you become a follower of Jesus, he gives you a new heart and new desires, a heart that beats for him. It is not the case that you will find yourself a Christian who is trapped. That is only possible if it was the kind of religion where you have to pay God off by doing certain acts of service so that you can get salvation in the end. That is not the gospel. The gospel is you were dead in sin and God by his spirit made you new so that you might live for him. And if you're a believer, this means you can have genuine assurance. If you're a believer, it means that God has done a new work in you. That you were born again. And just like when you were born the first time, it takes, it's only many years later that you realize the significance of actually what happened back there. And it means that you can have genuine assurance because if God saved you, he will keep you to the end. And that matters. Because when I was just newly a Christian, I believed that assurance was kind of like the spotlight theory of assurance. That if you did certain things or acted in a certain way, you were kind of within the spotlight of God's grace. But at any moment, you could step out of that. And your hope was that when it came to the end of your life, it would be on a good week when you happened to be doing the right things. That's not the gospel. The gospel is I was dead in sin and God has made me alive together with Christ. He has saved you and he will keep you to the end. There is genuine assurance in that. That is genuine grace all the way through. You did not save yourself. You've been given a new heart. And secondly, if that's true, it means genuine humility. It is impossible, logically anyway, of course it's possible in the human heart, but it is impossible logically to believe the gospel and at the same time to feel superior to other people. If this is the gospel, if the new birth, if regeneration is true, those two things are logically incompatible. You cannot believe the gospel and feel superior to someone else. Because the gospel is this, that there were not dumb people and smart people. There were not wicked people and good people. There were not foolish people and wise people. There was only sinners and you were shown the mercy of God. At, uh, at our small group recently, we are going back through albums that reminded us of like a particular time, like a summer holiday or a, when someone started a new job or whatever it was, just kind of reminiscing for a while. And one of the albums that came up was one called Feel the Illinois by Sufjan Stevens. And it took us a fair way back. Big shout out from one person in the room. So getting a lot of feels for that one. But there's a song on that album, if you know it, and it's, um, there's only a few tracks like this where they have a really kind of um, a catchy feel to them. And then later you start listening to the lyrics and you're like, oh my gosh, what is actually going on here? Like, like pumped up kids or something like that. It's only later on when you realize what it's actually about. And uh, there's a song called John Wayne Gacy Jr. And it's got a beautiful folky sort of feel to it. And you can get really lost in it until you realize that it's a song about a serial killer. And the last line in the song is the song that grips people most when he says, and on my best behavior... 
I'm really just like him. And you think, really? I, I mean, yeah, I can be pretty awful, but I'm no serial killer. Now, the truth is that whilst we may not, we may not have caused as much damage with our sin as others, the truth is, as the old Christian saying goes, there but for the grace of God go I. We all alike were under sin, dead in our transgressions, and the only difference between me and another person was God pouring out his mercy. The ground at the foot of the cross is flat. And the good news of that is that there is no one who cannot be saved. There is no one who cannot be saved because God is a God whose arm is, too, is not too short to save. I'm going to pray that we would be humble, that we would be assured, and that we would be a praying people. Let's pray. Father God, we just marvel at how far your grace had to go to save sinners like us. We praise you that though we were dead in our sin, by your great love you made us alive together with Christ. You took out our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh that loves you, that believes in Christ and lives for you. And though we still deal with sin, we know that this is not our truest or deepest desire or self, but that you have made us new. And so, Father, we pray that we would live this out and for the glory of your name. Amen.